Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. I just left Walter Reed Medical Center, and it's really something very special. The doctors, the nurses, the first responders, and I learned so much about coronavirus. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently. And you're going to beat it. I went, I didn't feel so good. And two days ago, I could have left two days ago. Two days ago, I felt great, like better than I have in a long time. I said just recently, better than 20 years ago. Don't let it dominate. Don't let it take over your lives. Don't let that happen. We have the greatest country in the world. We're going back. We're going back to work. We're going to be out front. As your leader, I had to do that. I knew there's danger to it, but I had to do it. I stood out front. I led. Nobody that's a leader would not do what I did. And I know there's a risk, there's a danger, but that's okay. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune. I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there. Be careful. We have the best medicines in the world, and it all happened very shortly, and they're all getting approved, and the vaccines are coming momentarily. Thank you very much. And Walter Reed, what a group of people. Thank you very much. You know, these doctors, they said I had to take the motorcade. I could have just put on my cape and flown home. You know, I could have done that. That's who I am. I'm invincible. Unbelievable. He's out of his mind. I think he could have flown home, but I think in his own mind, because he's batshit crazy on uh, on steroids. But be, uh, we before we go on, to interpret this, we brought in a noted uh, psychologist, former Senator Claire <laughs> McCaskill, uh, to help us sort through uh, all of this, uh, Claire, welcome. Good to see Thank you. Thank you. Good to see both of you. And uh, I don't think you need a psychologist to say how deranged uh, the leader of this great nation is right now. It's, um, you know, you, I, I constantly go back and forth between wanting to sob and wanting to laugh hysterically. Um, this is what he's done to my psychology. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I am worried, actually, because he's going to continue to take these steroids, which have, you know, notable side effects, including manic swings and and, uh, delusions and so on. And, you know, maybe we saw some of that last night. But Murphy, when we got together on Friday and did a hacks on call after he got sick, um, you know, you said, look, there's one way that he could turn this to his advantage advantage which would be to go through it like boris johnson did and come out and say i see it in a different way now i get it i get how profoundly hard this is and you know and and kind of turn it um but that would have required him to be a sympathetic figure and donald trump thinks sympathy is for is for uh you know Sissy, S- sympathy is for weak people. Yeah, it's and, a snowflake and, thing, David. That, that's yeah, the sympathy. Yeah, right. I think uh, some other of the White House drag squad, it kind of had the same idea, which was, you know, if they'd done this the normal way, the non batshit crazy way, it would have been president had some real problems. He's got a serious disease. He's on oxygen. He's going to Walter Reed. The cable networks would have all gone to somber music and a nation waits. And then it would have been a valiant struggle. And then he would have had a comeback. 
And that would have, you know, the, the people who care about at least the presidency, there, there would have been some relief. Instead, be, and, and we've conducted the science experiment now a zillion times. So when in doubt, they're, they're always going to do the Trumpy thing, which is show strength at any cost and lie their asses off. And so that's what they did. They got Dr. Metaspin out there, you know, with that oxygen dance on day one, which set the whole tone of dishonesty. And, and now we're just watching this needy, crazy guy who is, you know, so obsessed with appearing strong, even against the virus, um, doing the Pinochet Superman thing at the end on the balcony. I mean, he's destroyed anything, at least politically, that would have worked for him in this. And it's just horrible. Um, but it's him, and it's never going to change. He's the atomic lock of him. And meanwhile, we're talking about this. The, the polling data shows the country's had enough. You know, uh, Claire, I want to just play a clip from uh, uh, from Dr. Conley, who... Uh, uh, who uh, Murphy refers to as Dr. Hyperspin or whatever it was. Metaspin. It's a whole new category Doc, we invented Doc, here. Doc, with this guy. Dr. Metaspin. But uh, why don't you uh, tee up uh, question two, because it, it raises another question that I wanted to take up with you, Claire. Tell us when he had his last negative test. Was it Thursday? Was it Wednesday? When, do you remember when he had his last negative test? I, I don't want to go backwards. Uh for people who are around him to I understand. The contact tracing, uh, as I understand it, is being done. Uh, I'm not involved in that. Um, so. I, I've written and I've said, I, I believe that they knew what was up, and I believe Donald Trump thought that he could bogart his way through this, and then the jig was up when uh, Hope Hicks got disclosed mm -hmm. as having this on Thursday, and he came up with, uh, with symptoms, but I mean, obviously, you have to go backwards if you're going to contact Trace. And New York Times said this morning they, they refused the CDC's offer of contact tracing because they would have to disclose to them when they suspected that he had the virus. Seems to me this is, you know, in a sense, it's a microcosm of the entire deal. Like this guy has thought he could spin this virus from the very beginning. You know, I said the other day, everybody that Trump touches turns into liars, including doctors. And this doctor um, has lied to the American people about the president's condition. He has selectively cherry picked uh, the medical information he wants to share and then hides behind HIPAA when he doesn't, when the president doesn't want people to know what his lung scan looks like. And the very notion that this doctor would say, I don't want to go backwards, when going backwards is, in fact, the protocol. That is the medical protocol. And, you know, doctors all over the country have said if, if, if they had let a COVID-active patient shedding virus go take a joyride around the block for a photo op, they would have been fired on the spot. So this is really a sad moment where the president has not, he's sullied everything at this point. He's sullied the FBI, the intelligence service. He's sullied the First Amendment. He's sullied journalism. Now he's sullying medicine. Well, so the American people are seeing doctors who they think they should be able to trust, you know, doing just the opposite of what they should be doing, giving clear, transparent information. And, and Trump, you know, here's the thing, guys. Trump is treating contact tracing the same way he's treated testing. Less is better because then you don't know how bad it is. I guarantee you there are plenty of people that have COVID that have been in the president's orbit over the last 10 days that are not saying it. 
They are keeping it quiet, trying to protect him politically. Well, he he was reported to have asked them, asking at least one aide to keep it quiet. Yeah. 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 Meanwhile, he comes back to the White House and he's like, uh, you know, I mean, they're falling like flies there. I mean, it is. Uh, it's a cluster, you know, it's in, a in every sense of the word. <laughs> Hey Murphy, what 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 does he do now? What does he do now, though? Because uh, he seems intent on going back to campaigning. You know, they're supposed to do this town hall debate in uh, on October fifteenth. How'd you like to be one of these yeah. one of these citizens selected for the town hall group? It's like you know, I got to do my laundry that yeah, night. I you know, I, I wanted can... to, but uh, I think I'll, can I can I email in a question? Um, yeah, I, look, I have always thought from the beginning. It, it's now an in vogue theory, it wasn't then, that the great analog for Trump is Jesse Ventura. So weird populist campaign wins, a lot of kind of overthink and rationalization, and this is a new model for politics, and people trying to kind of explain it, and it's going to go national, and gee whiz. Then petty fights with legislators, you know, the governor's mansion can't install a hot tub. I mean, it just gets very banana republic by the middle. And then the campaign just kind of peters out pathetically. And I'm kind of seeing that now. Trump is going to go try to do rallies. There's going to be hyperventilating on cable. There's going to be that whole ecosystem. But meanwhile, while Dr. Metaspin is hiding Trump's x-ray, the campaign x-rays are here. We can see them in the polling data, and the campaign is crumbling and collapsing. They're broke. They're, they're dropping in the polls to ridiculous numbers that I think they will have some comeback from. But it, it it's really, really bad. So there would be this kind of weird... Trump reality of I'm I'm doing a rally and I'm going to Indiana, you know, it's just madness, that little roadshow of his bubble. <laughs> Everybody they're scattering. Yeah, yeah. And and meanwhile, <laughs> look, I know I know folks inside the Trump operation. They're they're literally nobody's crossing off the calendar faster than they are um to get this nightmare over with. And it's just crumbling to pieces. So I think we're in two realities, the campaign reality and the Trump bubble reality. What about Biden? Uh, what would you advise him to? to be doing now he's got the lead and the and the ball really uh and he's got 28 days here what would you be doing i'm like a big believer that you never sit on a lead i hate prevent i hate <laughs> uh, the notion that you go to something careful i think he needs to continue to show strength i thought his town hall last night was um I will confess watching split screen between the chiefs and the town hall, but nonetheless, I saw enough of it to see that uh, he is doing great. I think he needs to, I think he's been strong the last few weeks. I think he needs to continue to be strong. And, uh, you know, you can't get around the fact that we have a really a jerk on one side and a really nice guy on the other. And that matters. Yeah, that, that's that the matters. golden contrast. First of all, who is more energetic, Biden or Patrick Mahomes? Uh, honestly. Get, well, Pat, Patrick didn't have his best <laughs> night last night, but that was okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this, 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 yes, the big contrast. And I think you look at these polls, some of which were taken uh, before he got sick and after uh, the debate. Uh, some included the period when he got sick. Uh, and, you know, I thought the minute that debate ended that this campaign was over. Uh, that that Trump basically self-immolated, that all the qualities he that people dislike about him were on such vivid display uh, that night that, uh, you know, and it wasn't that Biden had, you know, such a stellar performance, but his right. decency, 
was on display, and uh, the contrast was really uh, w- was really stark. And it's showing up in these numbers. There were a couple of polls. I you know these are on the outer edge. The the polling average has has gone up a couple of points to like a nine point lead, which is a massive lead in presidential politics. But CNN had a poll uh, today that had uh, Biden up. Uh, fifty-seven, forty-one. They that—that that is a. They were up. So that's a sixteen. But the, his lead doubled since uh, September. Wall Street Journal, NBC on Sunday, from eight 14. to four, fourteen. And uh, you know, a lot, a lot of it, you guys, is uh, senior citizens who uh, saw that debate, and uh, you know, I think they they expect certain things from a president of the United States, and they didn't see it. In Trump, well, they have a memory too. I mean, senior citizens, people who've been around politics, remember presidents who could eat with a knife and fork and had some respect for the office and everything. They've got a wider reference point, um, and I, I think that you know Trump just is such an assault upon that. And again, as you guys were saying, Biden is—he's the most valuable thing you could be in American politics right now. He's an anti-Trump in temperament and demeanor and experience and everything. And the country's just ready to rotate. They're coughing this guy up like a hairball. So I'm with Claire, you know, always when you're ahead, attack some more to get more ahead offense all the time. I, I hope there's a big move into Ohio because I think they can break Trump there, but Biden should also do some risk management here because every day that goes by like today and we're running out of days is a tremendous day for Biden. The best news I had yesterday was seeing that Jill Biden is going to Georgia next Monday. That means they are expanding the map. And you guys know, you've been in presidential campaigns. You know exactly what this is about right now. It is where can we let up the gas a little bit and where can we go get another state? And the fact that they are going to Georgia right now tells you all you need to know. And the fact that the Trump campaign, I mean, what is up with them pulling down ads in Ohio? I mean, are they that broke? They pulled down their ads in Ohio. They pulled down their ads in Iowa, which is a even race right now. Unbelievable. And by the way, I'm not sure Joni Ernst was very appreciative of that because she needs Trump to win her Senate race. She needs Trump to have more than a small yeah, margin. They won by nine, nine last time. But they also cut their buys in uh, in Michigan and in uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, I think. Uh, so. You know, that is, it's inexplicable. Well, there's an equation, though. We, we all know it. It, it. It's in October, and early voting is just starting now. And you're the campaign manager, and somebody comes in and says, hey, Biden just dumped $7 million into Ohio television. Hmm, bad sign. Two, our polling, multiple, I've seen it, multiple Republican polls show Biden pulling ahead in Ohio. Do you ever answer that question with, okay, yank our ads off the air? No, you only do it when the accountant is sitting there, rolled up in a ball on the floor, sobbing, because you have no cash. And that's what's going on. The $800 spending spree pre-convention is really hurting them now. Yeah, I misspoke. I think it was Wisconsin and Michigan that he cut his buy down. Biden is complete. I mean, Claire, did you ever imagine a day when an incumbent Republican president would be dwarfed in dollars by a Democratic challenger for president, I mean, this is really inconceivable. I mean, Trump is 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 basically broke, as Mike said, and he is left to cover all this territory. He is really spending most of his money trying to defend Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, and uh, man, what a what a turn of events that is. 
Yeah, and listen, I, I don't want to d- discount the fact that there's still a lot of dark money in politics. There's still a lot of six-figure checks getting cut by big, important people and a lot of corporate interests that are still putting their finger on the scale. But we cannot miss this story. Something has changed in American politics. Yeah, big. For the first time, for the first time, people giving five, ten, twenty, thirty dollars, a hundred bucks, over and over again online. And we saw it first in the Obama campaign. I mean, I remember yeah. teasing the former president. You know, quit whining to me about how tough your campaign is. You open the office door every morning and open the cash register, and it's full. That was the beginning of the online giving. It is now dwarfing uh, what others are doing. And that is what's driving these Democratic Senate campaigns. It's what's driving this presidential campaign. It is not the $2,800 at fancy living rooms. It is people online saying, I want to vote with what I can afford. And that will change American politics forever. Well, and now if you go to a fancy $2,800, Hundred dollar living room thing of Trump. You need to wear a space suit. You know <laughs> these, these round tables with mega donors, says. like he like yeah. he did up in New Jersey. Those are over. Uh, yeah. and, right. and just a note of personal privilege on on evil dark money. If there's any evil dark money listening, uh, send your millions <laughs> to Republican voters against Trump because we can take evil dark money and karmically cleanse it and make it very good money that helps America. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous. But nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now. And it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects. Zero. For as long as needed, the technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to ReliefBand.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to ReliefBand, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D, Dot com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. 
back to Biden and what he should be doing for a second. I agree with you, Claire, that he he should play offense and they should be sending him to to places where he might uh, expand the map. Uh, he also, in that town hall, uh, addressed uh, the 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 whole coronavirus issue and Trump, and I thought he did so to great effect. Let's listen to that one. Look, I view wearing this mask not so much protecting me, but as a patriotic responsibility. All the tough guys say, I'm not wearing a mask, I'm not afraid. Well, be afraid for your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your neighbor, your co-worker. That's who you're protecting having this mask on, and it should be viewed as a patriotic duty. I mean, I think that was solid gold right there. Yeah, and totally that relevant to right gold. now. It, by the way, he had a good day in Florida. You know, he was greeted by a Ben Dixon poll in the Miami Herald. That was the poll that six weeks ago started the big South Florida panic. And uh, the, the Miami numbers are getting better and better, far more to normal. The Latino numbers are coming back. The Cuban numbers are still not great, but they're chipping away. So that, that was, uh, yes, it was a very good day for Biden on all counts. To Claire's point, I think that... Um, not only is he lifting himself up, but everyone, you know, you say, Claire, he's going to Georgia. You know, I think they're playing hard in Georgia, not just because Georgia is actually a state in contention. And all you have to do is look at Trump's spending to understand that it's the one place where he's spending really competitively. But you have two Senate races there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Biden is, is, is playing in Iowa. Uh, it, Trump is not playing in Iowa right now. You've got a a Senate race there. So he is not only uh, trying to expand the map for himself, but he's playing in places where he thinks he might be able to help lift Senate candidates. And I'm sure your old buddy Chuck Schumer is whispering in his ear on that very point. I wouldn't say whispering. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, He doesn't have that uh, gene. No, I said that whispering is not in his repertoire. Um, I have uh, talked to a lot of senators the last few weeks, more than I have in a while. I think that's because uh, everyone is trying to manage this Supreme Court nomination in a way that doesn't upset the apple cart, uh, you know, in the days coming up to the election. In talking to all of these senators, they really do believe, including Schumer, they do really believe they've got nine races in play. And um, that is remarkable because they got to have four. And I think they are going to, you know, I think they're in a very strong position right now. And, and um, you know, I think Joni is in trouble in Iowa. I think, you know, Corey is done in Colorado. I think yeah. Martha McSally is done yeah. in Arizona. Um, you know, I, I, I think my friend Susan is going to have a very, very tough time Susan in Maine. Susan Collins in Maine, yeah. There's a little wrinkle down in North Carolina right now. Yes, old That's right, doing a lot of personal outreach on the campaign. <laughs> yeah, you know, here's the thing, though, about that. I had a lot of people calling me in a panic about that. You know, I really, you know, if we think about who's sitting in the White House. Um, you know, this is Mr. Adulterer. You know, this is a serial adulterer. This is somebody paying off porn stars uh, right after his wife, uh, having sex with porn stars right after his wife gives birth. You know, I I really, um, if I were advising the Cal Cunningham campaign, I would um, not hide. I would admit it. I would. Well, he's done that. Basically has. He basically has. Apologize and keep going and keep hitting and keep going after 
Yeah, uh, no, he's uh, got to burn the issue off and keep moving. It, That's right. He's got to, yeah. And, and and there, I don't think any pause is appropriate here. Um, is it great this happened? No, but I um, am somebody who refuses to see at this point that that means that North Carolina falls off the table. I I think Cal Cunningham is still in a really strong position, and I never thought I'd say this, <laughs> but Lindsey, after watching that debate. Lindsey Graham is in trouble. Well, I he said was the- definitely on his heels. I have never seen Lindsey that, you know, I mean, he was clearly upset and scared. And it was not the Lindsey Graham that I used to know who was a reasonable guy. It's yeah, it's problem is it's still South Carolina. I mean, I think in the 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 Supreme Court fight's gonna help him there. But he's in a race, which is a shocker to begin with. I mean, Harrison right. is definitely in the race. Harrison is raising more money than Graham. I sent the Cal Cunningham people a new slogan to save everything, which was bringing down political adultery from the inside. <laughs> if I had to bet right now, I would still bet on Cunningham narrowly. Yeah, in the in, in North Carolina, we'll we'll see in the next few days. I really do think what might have been shocking and jolting now uh, may not. I think Claire. You're, you're right about that. And he was uh, he was quick to be out there. But we'll see in a few days. But on the Graham uh, race, you know, Lindsey made a Faustian bargain. He knew that he, he thought that he would lose in a primary if he didn't jump in Trump's lap. And he did it with full uh, verve. And now the comes the do bill uh, for that. He uh, you know, uh, what is extraordinary about that race is probably as much as anyone in the country. Harrison has just raised boatloads yeah, of money down there. And after the appointment of the uh, Supreme Court nominee, uh, that money flowed like by, uh, you know, leaps and bounds uh, more into his uh, into his coffer. So he is he is saturating Lindsey Graham with uh, uh, with media down there. He and, and the polling down there, the private polling down there really does have it as a it's even an even race. Lindsay's privately telling people, well, I'm going to win this thing by three or four points. What a remarkable thing to say in a state like South Carolina. Uh, I, I do think he has uh, problems. Well, and he's also about to chair these Supreme Court hearings, which will put him uh, front and center. Now, that may help him. I think you're going to argue it would help him, right? But I don't know about that. N- not as much as it would have 10 years ago. And there will be money in 10. The thing about Lindsay's race is, in a normal year, he's going to eck out a victory based on South Carolina. But when you look at the current polling collapse of the Trump campaign and the what appears to be no ability or any resources to smartly get out of it, then you start wondering, will this be a 1980s scenario in the Senate? I think uh, Gibbs and I talked about that with uh, Joe Trippi a few episodes ago. And under that scenario, then the Alaskas of the world, they right. pop, Montana, Lindsay would lose potentially. Right. You know, does normalcy get turned over in the Dem sweep, or does does it tighten a little bit? Things dig in, and then the Lindsays of the world probably make it. But the Joni Ernst can definitely still go down. And Collins, Gardner, as you mentioned, McSally. You know, and then the question is: Is there any scenario to which Doug Jones survives in Alabama, which is really tough? But in a 1980 wave, eh, possible. So yeah, I agree. I, you look at you. We all remember 1980. And, you know, there's just the titans of the Senate who went down, you know, Church and McGovern and uh, Birch Bayh and so on. It was shocking. Uh, And that I mean, we will see whether we're 1980 or whether we're in a more, you know, modest kind of wave uh, of a 94 
you know, 2006. But the ground is rumbling. You know, I'm not going to predict that kind of earthquake, but if you look at a glass of water right now, you got the little ripples in it based on this polling <laughs> and the fact that Trump has gone mad. Guys, that's why this hearing and how it is conducted is so important. And this is this is one that I, in a plea to those who are so angry and frustrated at what Mitch McConnell has done with the Senate around Supreme Court nominees, I totally get it. But it is going to be really important to not give Lindsey Graham and the rest of the Republicans a moment of righteous vindication over a circus-like atmosphere. It is going to be very important that this nominee be treated with respect. I mean, the numbers are unforgiving. This is math. If Mitch McConnell wants to confirm this woman before the end of the year, Mitch McConnell is going to do it. If he wants to do it before the election, he's probably going to be able to do it if coronavirus doesn't strike down more senators. It, but, it, you know, it, the notion that somehow we should, you know, get, uh, you know, obnoxious and confrontational yeah. when the numbers are unforgiving, that puts in jeopardy our ability to hold on to Roe v. Wade with a statute, with, yeah. a, with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president. So I just think um, this is one of those times that for some of our most passionate supporters that are so angry on behalf of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that they've got to realize that there is a better way than flooding the halls with women in handmaiden costumes. Yeah, but do you think they will? Because Democratic rage and self-restraint are normally not, you know, um, uh, partners in, in politics. I think the Repubs are betting heavily on the scenario, Claire, you're warning them correctly, in my view, against. So that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an interesting test. Well, I'm going to do everything I can between now and then <laughs> to convince them that the smart thing is for us to take the Senate. And that means a low-key hearing that is respectful without anybody you know, giving any ground in terms of the principle or the policy, but not one that there is finger-pointing and shouting and, all, and, all, and people in costumes. Or stuff outside the chambers uh, exactly. dem- dem- demanding uh, the uh, right. Supreme Court packing, which I think you're going to hear a lot of. Look, the outrage is, um, is not just uh, on behalf of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The outrage is on behalf of Merrick Garland. Exactly. And you were, you were there. I was there. I'm still mad about Harry Reid, but that's another episode. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we could do a whole episode on Harry. Yeah, there's a whole history <laughs> here that would take up a whole show, but it's not the Senate's proud moment from either party. I-, I love you for so many reasons, but one of them is you are a completely honest and transparent and proud politician. I have to believe that if Democrats, given the importance of this seat, if Democrats had the opportunity, they probably would move to try and fill the seat right now. But the thing that makes it different is what Garland. happened four years ago. And right. I do think that that is, you know, Lindsay asked to have his words thrown back at him and he guaranteed that this wouldn't happen. I don't think it's inappropriate for members to raise that in the hearings. They don't have to raise it in a hyperbolic way. But I think it should be noted because it's clear from polling that the American people agree with that. And uh, so that that sort of more, you know, that sort of sleight of hand and bait and switch kind of deal. I think that should be on 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 display in those hearings. 
There is one scenario I think is still real, which is the coronavirus problem makes it impossible to hold a vote before the elections. And then you've got a lame duck Senate potentially going in the minority, trying to ram this thing in at the last minute like a banana republic. And I don't know if the caucus will hold under that, particularly if anybody's sick and they're down by one. And then you got Kelly. I'm not predicting it, but I am predicting a crack in the wall that it's not a done deal under that scenario. But Claire, you know Mitch McConnell who's a, not a sentimental guy. He probably understands where this thing is going. He now knows Trump is not going to be the president, and he's probably not going to be the leader. Uh, and he sees these court seats as his legacy. And I don't see, like if Mitch McConnell has to change the rules uh, so that you could mail in vote for the Supreme Court, he'll, he'll do it. I don't think there's anything that he wouldn't do uh, to see this uh, justice confirmed. The only melody that Mitch McConnell knows is power, not policy, not, I mean, he's in some ways worse than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is a narcissist and a sociopath, but Mitch McConnell, I mean, he really, there isn't policy that Mitch cares about because if there was, you wouldn't see record debt and deficits right now. Um, yeah, I, you know, that's the headline. You, you think single, he's worse than a narcissist and a sociopath. Huh? I, I, I mean, you know, I obviously I don't have a lot of respect for him because I've watched him operate when power was way more important. And that's what he did with Mary Garland. He had the power. He wielded it like a two by four. He mm-hmm. has the power now. He will do it. He will do it in lame duck. Um, now, if he is no longer the leader and you've got a Rob Portman and you've got a Roy Blunt and you've got a Toomey who's now not going to run again, you know, you might. But see, I had a lot of hope that Lamar Alexander yeah. would rise up and as he he's retiring. To, uh, yeah. and, and he was quick to say, yeah. And by the way, Lindsey Graham is lying about this Kavanaugh thing. When he said that, when he said, use my, save the tape, that was after the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing. Yes. His interview with The Atlantic was not, he's trying to say he changed his mind because of the way Kavanaugh was treated. Lindsay is lying about that. If you look at the dates, the date he said that, use the tape against me, we will never do this, was after the Kavanaugh confirmation yeah. hearing. So it, it's total bullshit. I just want to take a point of personal privilege on the, the Mitch thing, and believe me, I have a Sorry. complicated view on Mitch. But his his judicial stuff, which is wielding a two-by-four of power without a lot of respect for a lot, though I can argue, starting with the Kennedy Borking and then the Harry Reid and the judges below Supreme Court, there's been a long history of this stuff. But Mitch, I, I agree with that. But it is ideologically driven. He wants conservative judges as a legacy of the Republicans. That th- There is a total ideological motive behind his judge thing. It's not because he likes to have his buddies on the court and they, they salute him or something. It's because he believes in I get in that. I mean, you're judges. right about that. I, I take that point. But I watched the Republicans righteously indignant about spending and debt and deficit. And I've watched how they've behaved under this oh, president. Oh, on this we and agree. It's ridiculous. no higher hypocrisy in politics than the way they have abandoned their core value that they that they wrapped themselves around to take Congress in 2010 and completely abandon it. That's what I'm talking about. It, that's why I'm renting, not buying Democrat this year and voting for <laughs> Joe Biden. I'm a conservative. I couldn't agree more. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll see how long-term your lease becomes when you see what happens with your... <laughs> well, I, with I your, can go month to month. I've got a codicil in Your party after this. But the other thing, Claire, is you'll remember back then, I don't remember them saying, 
They said, let the people decide we've got a presidential election. I don't remember them saying, adding a codicil back then saying, but if there's a Republican Senate and a Democratic president, that's different. You know, you have to have a Senate and a president of both. That is something new. That is an ex post facto explanation for why they did the Garland thing. And it's it it's ridiculous. But let's get back to the hearing itself. How much should Democrats lean into Roe versus Wade and the choice issue? And how much because I'll tell you something, you see these ads on right now and all about don't attack her for her religion. You know, they're showing John F. Kennedy talking about separation of uh, of, of church and state and and that he you know, and it's clear Trump carried Catholic voters last time. He is losing with Catholic voters right now against a Catholic candidate. Um, I think part of this is they see this as a wedge. And if Democrats, uh, if Democrats bore in, like a cultural wedge, Democrats bore in on her, on her religious beliefs, uh, that that will help galvanize uh, their base and perhaps get some Catholics back. Is that something people should be concerned about? If I were advising my Senate colleagues on the committee, I would, in fact, lean in on um, people who are able to have babies by uh, IVF. I would lean in on um, Roe v. Wade. I would lean in on um, her stated objections. Um, I mean, she has said that she thinks it should be criminal. Um, IVF requires that some eggs are thrown away, and she believes that should be a criminal act. It would basically deny a lot of people in this country from the opportunity to have babies. And it is extreme. So I would lean in on extreme, but not mm-hmm. on religion. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is about an extreme view. The vast majority of Catholics support Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Not vast majority, a, a majority of Catholics support Roe v. Wade. I mean, there's a reason why the number of kids in Catholic families has gone down dramatically. They're using birth control. I got news for everybody. Um, women, <laughs> I'm not women sure. Taking... Bra- I'm not sure it's breaking news. Uh... <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. I'm writing this down here. This is... Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, Catholic women are are taking the pill, and so I would I would talk about extremism. And I would talk about Roe v. Wade going away, but I would not do it under the cloak of Catholicism. All right, let's take a minute to hear from one of our esteemed sponsors. And wouldn't you lean in? I mean, it seems to me that given the messaging of the uh, of the Biden campaign and the genuine concern that people have right now about health care, uh, don't you think they should lean in heavily uh, on her her stated position uh, about the Affordable Care Act? I mean, she wrote a piece criticizing yeah, Justice gold, Roberts. But... I, I would think I would lean really hard into that. Yeah, and there's a reason that Trump is lying about him supporting pre-existing conditions, because it is a driver of elections. It's probably the most important thing that drove vote in 2018 in terms of issues. It gets you something you don't have now if you're in Biden world. Well, it helps you get a vote that Trump stows some grip on, which is non-college educated 
white voters, uh, particularly women. It's a laser sword. Ask a lot of former Republican congressmen. Stick a pin in that because I want to amplify a point you made. In that CNN poll, in the crosstabs, CNN noted that uh, Trump had made gains among non-college white men and was at like 67% now. But in the tabs, uh, it was a 56-43 race among non-college white voters, which says to me that non-college white women are much more competitive. That's a group that Hillary Clinton lost by 27 points last time. So the gender gap, which is huge, extends to non-college white voters as well. Single non-college white women are a sweet spot for Joe Biden in this race. Yeah, no, no, and play it to the world. But that that ACA thing, that's the easiest one to use. If it becomes an abortion war, Democratic base groups will love it because it's you know, wish fulfillment, as we say in Hollywood, it also reelect Lindsey Graham, the chairman. So the Catholic thing is a problem because, you know, even if they're good at it, they're already semi guilty because of the die mistakes in the last hearing. So that's the problem for the Dems. They've already kind of unwittingly stumbled down that path and it's hard to get out. So I would be ACA all the time. And, and, and Coney's good. They ought to watch the toner. It, it, I think there are two things coming that, that could give the Republicans at least a little relief in this disaster. As you guys have been discussing potential Democratic fumbling and and rage politics at the Supreme Court deal and the upcoming debate we ought to talk about, Pence v. Harris. You know, I read a New York Times story today of a lot of leaks from the, the Democratic, maybe Biden world about, oh, she's the world's greatest debater, brilliant prosecutor, hardly wait, which I thought was an epic mistake. Because uh, Pence is the one, oh, he's a nitwit radio guy. You know, the, the expectations are beautifully set up for Pence to do well, although Trump will probably murder him for that. But uh, I'd be a little concerned that the Republicans are going to have an OK VP debate. What do you think, Claire? Wait, before Claire gets to that, talk a bit, because I, I think we should have a discussion about the debate. What do you think that Kamala's role should be in this hearing? Well, I think Kamala needs to be measured uh, in the hearing. Um, I've um, Kamala served on Homeland Security with me, and I have seen her be not measured in cross-examining witnesses. Uh, she's <laughs> done it very. She's done it very effectively. That's a one ex-prosecutor to, about and another. Th- th- that's exactly right. I mean, you learn when you're in the courtroom that if the alibi witness is bad and it's the aunt of the defendant. You know, you want to show the alibi witness is bad, but you don't want to destroy the aunt in the process because everybody feels for the aunt, you know, that's trying to help her nephew. So I think the expectations are too high for Kamala, I would agree, uh, because she is um, she did well in the debates uh, when she was running for president and she can handle herself. She actually is a real courtroom prosecutor. Most federal prosecutors really aren't. I mean, but she actually went in the courtroom and when you're in a courtroom, there's no script. You have to think on your feet. You have to react to what happens. So she'll do fine. Um, and this, I'll get killed for this. I'll get murdered for this. But there is a reality about women debating. And you can't yeah, escape absolutely. it. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying I agree with it. But you've got to end the debate being likable. Yep. Um, I've won some debates that I lost because I was so busy showing that I knew more and making my points that I forgot to show people that, you know, I felt them, that I understood them, that I was like them, that I related to them. And so she's got to really be careful and make sure she shows the warm, empathetic side of her. Um, And if she does that, then she'll win the debate. 
because she's got the facts on her side. That last point is so important because Mike, uh, Mike Pence is underrated as a debater. And we rem all remember what happened with Tim Kaine last time. Tim Kaine is the nicest guy in the world, was, was uh, trained up to be an attack dog in that uh, debate. And Pence you know, is the velvet hammer. And uh, he, he navigated that really well. He's unflappable. You know, he clothes uh, atta attacks in, you know, warm uh, wrapping. Right. And uh, so if you're over-torqued, uh, and I agree with you, it's a particular trap for women, fairly or unfairly, it's a particular trap. But if you're over-torqued, uh, Pence is good at handling that. So that she's yep. got to be concerned about that. She has this this thing, and I've mentioned it before, so send all your angry uh, letters and emails to Claire McCaskill and Dave. Quit Excel. inviting these angry letters and mail, you guys. <laughs> well, I'm we... going to generate. And I want to apologize. We got we got some viewer comments, and I have a bit of a malaprop thing, so I mispronounced her name, and I'm really not trying to, so I'm going to try really hard. Kamala, occasionally, without intending it, I believe, slips into the tone of a disgruntled patron. You know, like, my soup is cold. And uh, it sounds arch -sar sarcastic. It's a bad tone. And I don't think she means to do it. But from, from her point of view, they better work on that because it, it, it is both in the hearings where they've got Amy Klobuchar, who's good. No reason you can't use her a lot on TV. Um, it, it, there, there's danger there. And now, but that leads to the second question. Who cares? It's a VP debate. Will it mean that much? Here's the thing about that. I think it's a little different than VP debates in the past because these VPs, I think it's evident to everyone that one of these people could be president of the United States. This actually could be, I mean, it's unlikely, but this could be a preview of the 2024 presidential debate uh, because uh, it, it seems unlikely to me. I don't think he would say this, but that Biden would run again. And Kamala Harris would be the odds on favor to be the nominee. Pence is certainly going to run in 2024. Probably won't be the nominee, but he could. So, I mean, I, I just think that, that this notches up the debate in importance in, uh, you know, or, or interest. You hear that in focus groups. People talk about her because they don't think Biden is a two-term character. I think, by the way, neither will be the nominee, but they're both run. Another Murphy prediction based on a wild guess. Okay, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. Impressive, Claire, huh? You don't get that on every show. That's very impressive. A little sound effects. Holy cow. Sound effects on a podcast. Very Broadcasting impressive. legend David Axelrod. He's come so far. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Yeah, from 1942. All right. So Mike Murphy, uh, a listener named Denzel, says, Murphy, since you are choosing not to vote for Donald Trump and you have expressed feelings on issues that do not exactly align with even some down-ballot Republicans who enable the president, do you plan to vote for Republicans in the congressional, state, and local elections this year? Because I'm sure your vote will turn the tide in Los Angeles. <laughs> I really wish I lived in Columbus, Ohio right now. I added that last part myself. Yeah. That is a great question, Denzel. Yes, I'm, I'm not going to vote for the Orange Menace. This will be painful for me as a Republican, but country first. I suggest you go to the Bulwark and subscribe. It's the last high lantern of sensible center-right republicanism. If you search, there's an article there where I argue with myself about whether or not 
we never Trumpers should vote Republican down the ticket. The emotional thing is to punish them for being the spineless caucus and abandoning Republican ideology. The, but on the other side is issues count and the Democratic left is terrifying. So I argue with myself about that a lot. And my guess is I'll split my ballot uh, and vote for some Republicans. Although, frankly, for me, it's academic. I live in the People's Republic of Los Angeles County. So the Republicans here are like the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, they, they allow them to win a game every hundred years. So, but I, I'm very torn about what to do because the Irish half wants to punish the rational half. Uh, what I argue in the bulwark piece is it gives Biden, if he had a, a, a Republican majority of one, a, a fragile one in the Senate, his negotiating part with McConnell, which is good, by the way, and historically proven, he's one of the few who's been very good at that, would be a good hedge to help Joe fend off his, uh, his progressives, particularly in the House. So I'm still torn. Make your own decision based on the candidate and then meet at Never Republican headquarters later while we rebuild the party. Never Trump headquarters, where hopefully it won't turn into Never Republican headquarters. All right, a question for Claire from Christine. I wanted to ask about voter suppression, such as Texas Governor Abbott ordering that each county can only have one ballot drop box. Uh, amazingly disgusting, I'll editorialize. Even if Vice President Biden starts talking up his economic plan more, which I hope he does, will it even matter how many voters he wins over if Trump's team is pulling out every dirty trick in the playbook? And do you think the Democrats are able to fight back in any way? Well, first of all, what Abbott has done should be criminal. Um, you know, voter fraud is criminal. Voter suppression should be criminal, uh, especially if it is as obvious as what Governor Abbott is doing. Having said that, I disagree a little bit because there's some real psychology at work here this cycle. You know, the people who are trying uh, to, their votes are trying to be suppressed, they know what's going on. You know, I, I'll never forget uh, uh, an elderly African-American woman coming up to me in the airport one time and grabbing my hands. And I never met her. She was a stranger to me, but she called me Miss Claire, which made my heart go fast. She said, Miss Claire, I just want you to know, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep us from voting. No one will keep us from voting. We know what's at stake. So there is a reverse psychology here that there are a lot of voters that get what this program is that they are trying to keep us from voting. And I think you're going to see a record turnout of Democrats uh, on November. I think in the urban areas and the suburban areas, there is going to be a massive turnout. And I think it will inure to the Democrats' benefit the psychological war games that Donald Trump has played uh, trying to suppress the vote. For all the menacing that uh, we have seen, uh, if, if Biden holds on to the kind of lead that he has now, even if it's the average, the polling average, which is nine points. All that stuff is going to be academic because it's going to be clear who uh, who won the election. Interestingly, in that CNN poll, uh, people overwhelmingly believe the loser of the presidential race has an obligation to uh, concede uh, once the results are certified. Uh, but, uh, but, but a relatively few believe that he will do it that Trump will do it. They think Biden would. They don't think Trump will, which is kind of an interesting finding. You got one for me, Murphy? I do. And this is from Ryan. I really enjoy your podcast, especially since I have one kid at UChicago and one at USC, University of Southern California. Do you believe Trump has permanently lowered the level of civility in our national political discourse? Will we ever return to pre-Trump levels, which were never great, but now seem so tame? What will it take to get there? 
First of all, I'm glad you chose that question because it gives me a chance to tout the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, where Claire has been, and uh, uh, which I am the director of, and your own institute at the uh, University of Southern California, both there, hopingly, ho- hopefully promoting a civility uh, as, a, as an important ingredient in democracy. Look, I, I think part of what's happening right now Part of the reason Joe Biden is leading is there is a hunger in a lot of the country for something better. And he represents that and he has been unabashed about it. And I think Claire can attest to the fact that it wasn't always helpful in the Democratic primaries for Biden to be an an apostle of civility, a promoter of uh, working across party lines and so on. But there are a lot of Americans who are hungry for that, who are weary of the warfare that we've seen over the last four years. And, you know, that has crossed a line that we never imagined. There are a lot of forces pushing against it. The the, the nature of our media uh, environment uh, being a big part of it. And there are things in our political structure that add to polarization. And there are real factors in our lives, uh, economic factors and cultural factors that are pushing toward polarization. But um, I think there are people who really, a lot of people I speak to and a lot of people who show up in this polling uh, are hungry for something better and understand that we, we can't make progress as a country in a, in a, if it's always a, a kind of trench warfare, zero-sum game, personal uh, kind of affair. And one of the reasons I appreciate Claire McCaskill is she she understands that. Uh, and uh, she she uh, she was someone who stood for that principle, could fight really hard, never shied away from throwing a punch when a punch was warranted, but also knew how to walk across the aisle and try and work with people. And uh, just so important. I was just going to say, I hope we can get back to it. It's the only way you make lasting change in this country. I was just going to condemn what you said as typical Dewey-eyed optimism, <laughs> uh, which, which, of course, I totally agree with and why I'm proud to also be on the board at your institute. And I think there will be a rotation. I, I remain hopeful that America is evil buffoon-proof in the long run, and we're going to find out, I think, on Election Day. Last call. Yeah, so I just wanted to say what should be obvious. Please don't listen to the President of the United States when it comes to this coronavirus. Please listen to public health experts and medical experts and be very, very careful. You don't have to let this virus dominate your life, but in order to preserve your life and and be able to do the things that we want to do, we have to observe these these now proven proven, you know, steps, the, the, the masks, the social distancing, um, with the hand washing and so on, that isn't too much to ask. Uh, and we're headed into a really tough time because of the fall flu season in, we're going indoors. Don't listen to the president of the United States. He's delusional. He's on drugs. Yeah. I'll, I'll echo that. And here, here's a little doctor science stuff. The reason you have to wear a mask is masks work, but people think they wear a mask to keep the germ from coming into them, so it's their decision whether to wear a filter or not. That is not correct. The science of the mask is it keeps you, if you are an asymmetric, if you are an asymptomatic carrier, from when you cough or yell or scream or talk loudly to keep you from spraying the virus out to other people. It is a cap on your mouth to protect others from you. It's your duty to wear the damn thing. 
Don't be a wimp. Wear a mask. You know what's so weird about the whole thing? People have been begging me to wear a mask for years, and they've been begging you to put a cap on your mouth. And all <laughs> no, of a sudden, no, believe it's me, not, I, you know. I've sent you over a hundred of them, but yet I still hear <laughs> yap, yap, yap. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. We really appreciate You're you joining the, best, the Claire. Yeah, it was fantastic. Absolutely. My pleasure. Good to thanks be with you. Thanks to you guys. Hackaroos, thanks for tuning in. We will be back with a special post-VP debate. Do we lack lives or what? Late night episode that we'll get up right after that with all our vice presidential debate analysis with Axe, myself, and of course, the great Robert Gibbs. So be sure to tune in. <laughs>